0: Word, so if you've got a Bible or a phone handy, uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, um, so I'll give you a second to turn there now, and I'm going to read from verse 3 uh, to 14. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory.
1: Wonderful. If you have a a Bible, there should be a Bible nearby you. If you don't have one, please do uh, keep that open uh, as we turn to Ephesians together this evening. Let me pray. Let's do so. Father God, we, we come to you uh, desperate to hear from you, that you would speak to us, that our hearts would be transformed by the power of your gospel. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us to, uh, to hear you, Lord, that all the distractions of the day would be quietened and that we would hear your voice. Uh, this we ask for your son's sake. Amen. Now, uh, speaking to uh, a couple of people this week, uh, when they've asked me what I'm preaching on, when I've said election, they've said, oh, you're brave to be speaking about politics. <laughs> <laughs> but when we, when we talk about election, that's not really what, we're, what we mean. Uh, it's not really what the topic is. In fact, it's a far greater, far vaster topic uh, as we think about the doctrine Of election, because the question which rings out of this is really the question why am I a Christian? Why am I a Christian and my brother is not? Why am I a Christian and my mum is not? I wonder perhaps if you've asked yourself that question. Maybe you've asked why is it that I am a follower of Jesus, but my son or my daughter doesn't really care. Maybe your parents, maybe they grew up in church, but they don't really seem to care anymore. Maybe you're, you're married to someone and they're not a follower of Jesus. And no matter how much you pray for them, they don't really seem to bother about Jesus. Why? Am I a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And others are not. And whilst we don't really know what the Lord will do in time, we do wrestle with this, surely, don't we? As we ask the question, why why me, Lord? Why me and why not them? Well, Enter, if you will, with me as we look into this doctrine, the doctrine of election. As Carl mentioned, there we're continuing on in our, our series on the foundations of faith, six-part series. We've done three many months ago, and now we're on at number four. And so we've looked at, at these, which really talk about the, the process of salvation and how it is that we become a Christian. So far we've covered the doctrine of sin. We saw that we were blind, we were dead in sin, that we are enslaved to sin, and that it's only by God's grace that he brings us to new birth. He brings us to new life. As he makes us alive by his spirit, he opens our eyes to set us free to see Jesus. And so we've seen sin, we've seen new birth, and then we saw the cross, as we saw how Jesus died for his people the elect, as we place our faith, as we place our trust in Jesus Christ, then we are born again and saved. And yet underpinning all of this, underpinning all of these things is really the doctrine of election or what is called predestination. And it's really like the, the foundations of a house. As If you build a house, you can't see the foundations of a house but without them the house can't stand. Election teaches us that God chooses a certain group of people to be his own. And now I, I don't know what you think about this doctrine. Some people might think it's quite a strange thing, or maybe a niche thing, uh, that it's not really a, a majority view. But as you look at through look through history, it is uh, a historical and a mainline view. If you're from a Church of England background, it is in the 39 Articles of Religion. I won't read the whole thing, but Article 17 in modern English says this: In the Church of England, it says predestination to life is the eternal purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid. He has consistently decreed by his counsel, which is hidden from us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he has chosen in Christ out of mankind and to bring them through Christ to eternal salvation as vessels made for honor. If you are Anglican, if you are Church of England, that is what you believe. If you're Baptist, Well, the 1689 London Baptist Confession is briefer. And it says, those people, again in modern English, those people who were predestined to life were chosen by God before the foundations of the world, according to his eternal and unchangeable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. He chose them in Christ for eternal glory, purely as a result of his free grace and love without anything else about them serving as a condition or cause, moving him to do so. If you're Presbyterian, the Baptist nicked that from you. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is pretty much the same as the Baptist Confession, copied and pasted, because you can't really couldn't better it. And so whilst it's a, a mainstream view, whilst it's historical, Protestant historical view, it is still a very hot topic I remember being in Italy a few years ago and when I was asked by a pastor if I could preach on something at his church, I said to him, what would you like me to preach on? And he said, well, anything as long as it's not predestination and walked away laughing. I didn't see it. I didn't know why it was funny. Then the other, another pastor, I spoke to him about Ephesians 1 because he had preached through Ephesians 1 but would not mention the name predestination for fear of response of what the people would say to him afterwards. In my own experience, really far too often, I've seen it used as a bat, that people use it to hit one another over the head with about how wrong one another are, about how wrong other people's views are. But in entering the subject of election and predestination, I think it's really helpful to pick up on the tone of the Apostle Paul's words here in Ephesians, because the tone really matters as you see there from verse 3 if you have your, have your Bibles open it says praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the tone is praise it's praiseworthy as Paul wants that people not to argue with one another over it but to praise God because of it and as we look at this together tonight that is my prayer as well that we wouldn 't argue with one another uh, we wouldn 't argue with one another over it, but that we would praise God because of it, because we should praise God for election as it reveals three things of God it reveals the loving character of God, it reveals the, the rich blessings of God, and lastly the gracious, glorious grace of God and so firstly it reveals the loving character of God. We learn something of the character of God as we look at at verse four there, where it says that he chose us in him before the creation of the world. As amazingly, he, that is our heavenly father, chose us in Christ before the creation of anything. And that is truly amazing, is it not? That before the beginning of all things, God the Father chose you. Often when we read through some of the letters of Paul in the New Testament, he sometimes starts at Adam, works through Israel, and then gets to Jesus and the church and obviously us. But amazingly here, Paul doesn't do that. No, he starts with the foundations of the world, the creation of the world. Before time itself, God the Father knew you. As in uh, we heard maybe in first Peter it speaks about God's foreknowledge that in the same in the same way Adam knew Eve, that is a, an intimate knowledge and knowing of one another. In the same way that same word is that God knows us in such an intimate way as He reaches down to us and places His love upon us. Before anything came into being, he placed his love upon us. Why do I say love? Why, why is love the motivation? Well, because as you see there at the end of verse 4 and into verse 5, it says this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Wonderfully, we see that the love of God in the Trinity, in saving us, as in John 10, that the Father gives the Son uh, the people. That is that that we are God's gift to the Son, that God chooses us in love and gives us to his Son. The Father chooses us, That the Son accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit applies all these uh, things to our hearts. In love, the Father it chooses us, He saves us, not according to anything that we have done, but by His gracious love. As God chooses us, as it says at the verse, end of verse 5, in accordance with His pleasure and will. Amazingly, God the Father is pleased to set His love upon us. He's, he does so in His Son, and He does so completely freely. He's not reliant on anything or anyone, but he just loves to do so. And secondly, it really doesn't it doesn't he's not forced by anyone, but he just wants to do so out of his pleasure. His pleasure and will. It brings him pleasure to love us, to choose us. Practically speaking, It smashes the idea that Jesus in some way has to arm wrestle the Father into loving us. That if Jesus says the right things to the Father, then He will send, He will be sent to, to save us. But that's not true here because in election, God the Father, His heart pours out to us. That He saves us because He loves us. It's our Heavenly Father who places His love upon us and draws us into the love of God, the love of the Trinity, the whole eternal love of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we would share in that love. Because the love of the Father just radiates out to us in His Son, Jesus. As we praise God for His loving character and election, And then secondly, we praise God for the rich blessings that he gives us in election. When we think we have in some way grasped the beauty of the father's love coming to us in election, then we're struck by the blessings of God that come to us in his son. As you look there at the end of verse three, uh, we've now been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The father in love chooses us and gives us rich privileges and blessings. Privileges that before that time only God the Father shared with his Son. But now he invites us in to share that with him. As we before coming to know the Lord, we were like the mechanic's clothes. Filthy. We couldn't come into God's holy presence. But in love, God chooses us that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. Where we were once unclean and couldn't come to the Lord, he calls us out, he cleanses us and makes us holy and blameless. And now we can come into his perfect and holy presence, the presence of our heavenly Father and say, Father, I love you. And yet at the same time we are so unworthy, we are so unworthy to come into his presence. But the Father invites us in because he sets his love upon us. Surely the only response is that of praise, praise and thanksgiving for his love to us. As in love he he predestined you and me for adoption into sonship. If you're trusting in Jesus this evening, you can enjoy all the privileges that are yours in Jesus. As you're no longer a a spiritual orphan out in the cold and distant from God, but you are welcomed in into the warmth, into the embrace of God, our Heavenly Father. Now you can bask in the blessings of the family of God as a child of God. As you have been adopted into his family. G. I. Packer describes the blessings of adoption in saying this. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Let me say that again. Closeness. Affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge in justification is a great thing, but to be loved, to be loved and cared for by God the Father in adoption is far greater. And this is only possible through the blessings that we receive in Jesus Christ. As Paul says in verse 7, In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. As God the Father shows his amazing love to us in the forgiveness that he lavishes upon us in his son, that we would experience those privileges in him. And so we praise God, we can praise God for election, as it reveals the the character, the beauty of God, and the blessings of God But thirdly, the glorious grace of God. As we think of the the father choosing us, we're now united to his son and adopted into his family as his children. We have to ask, how did this happen? Well, as it says in verse five, it is in accordance with his pleasure and will. In accordance with his pleasure and will. Later, as I'm sure very familiar verses in Ephesians 2, in verse 8 and 9, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How can we possibly boast about something that we didn't do? We we can't. We merit nothing other than God's punishment for our sins against him. And yet in love, he chooses us and saves us by his good pleasure and free will. And so we praise him. We praise him for what he has done. As Paul says in Romans 9, it does not therefore depend on human effort or human desire, but on God's mercy. We bring nothing. God brings everything. Therefore, all the praise and all the glory goes to him and not to us. As Paul says from verse 6 to 8 of Ephesians, as you look there, God saves us to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, that is, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us. Because even though by nature we are, as we saw, dead in our sins, we are enslaved to sin, our Heavenly Father displays the riches of His grace to us. He displays His lavish love by giving the very best thing to us. His Son. He gives us Jesus. He sacrifices His Son for us. Not because we are lovely in any way, but to display the riches of his grace that he lavishly blesses us with as he shows his love to us. As he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives again to display his glorious grace. And so we praise him. We praise him for his glorious grace to us in Jesus. And yet at the same time, there might be some objections to this. One of the objections could be that people say, well, it doesn't seem fair. The argument might be, well, how can God choose some people but not other people? But that assumes that we in some way are neutral, that we come to God in some way to say, actually, we're not all that bad, really. But when we see the holiness of God, And the rottenness of our own hearts. How can we possibly say that? As it says in Romans 3, no one is righteous. No, not one. All have turned away. To ask for fairness is really to ask for justice. It's like the guilty man standing in the dock asking for justice. The problem is we're that guilty man. We don't want justice. We don't, we want mercy. The prayer is not, Lord, have justice on me. The prayer is, Lord, have mercy on me. Maybe another objection is perhaps the area of free will. How does free will work in this? Well, maybe it's to ask, who is free in this? Is it God or is it us? As in sin, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. We're enslaved to sin. So therefore only God can revive us. He's the one that brings us to life. It is His sovereign choice that He sets His love upon us. And God chooses whom He wills and therefore it really doesn't depend on us. Otherwise in some way we could be proud of what we do. This is why it's often called unconditional election as there's really nothing in us that makes God love us as one theologian says the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary well someone might say if God is totally sovereign and totally in control well doesn't that make us in some way like robots because we're not free to choose but if we're dead in our sins and slaves to sin then God needs to choose us, we have no free will in that If it's based on us choosing, then that would be, in some form, a work. But we know we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone. Or should I say, as Paul says in verse 6 of Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us. Another objection might be that if, if God is sovereign, then how can it be our fault but Jesus says in, in Matthew 11:25, 25, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Uh, the reason is for doing so is to show that we cannot boast. We can't boast in anything, in anything in us. as it's not something that we did, because then it wouldn't be grace. Other objections might be, Well, why tell people about Jesus? Why would we tell people about Jesus if God already knows who he's going to choose? Maybe a response to that would be to say, well, what does Jesus say? Matthew 11, he says, come to me. Come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, wait until you think that you know you are God's chosen people. He says, come to me. The, the offer is to come, to come to Jesus, to repent and believe and trust in him and be saved. As God is totally sovereign in salvation and yet we are totally responsible. Because it's not a, a dash of one and a dash of the other, but that God is fully sovereign and that we are fully responsible for all that we do. Because interestingly, election is really not a, a New Testament idea. It doesn't just pop up in the New Testament. As it's there in the Old Testament with the call of Abraham in Joshua chapter 24 as Abraham is called out of uh, pagan worship. And then there's the call of Israel, which is described in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, there's a couple of verses verse 7 and 9, which it speaks about the the call of Israel. And let, let me read it to you there. It says, The Lord did not set his affection on you, that is Israel, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh king of Egypt did you understand why God chose his people there was it because they were in some way better than others was it because they weren't as bad as the other nations was it because they were a little stronger or a little more holy than the other nations no Let me read it again, just verse 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. Why did the Lord choose his people? Why did the Lord choose you? Because he loves you. not because of anything in you but because he loves you because God is love as John says for this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins that is God's love free to us as we sing Psalm 115 verse 1, we can sing it with full hearts as it says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. And therefore we praise God. Because if we're very honest, in this topic, the problem is not our intellect. The problem is our pride. We want to prove that we've done something. We want to show that we have in some way merited this. But we have nothing to offer the Lord. It is a free gift of grace. And therefore election is not something to be be feared, but it is amazingly reassuring as we know that as we share the good news of the gospel with people, God will save his people. And that really reminds me of a story from from last summer in Keswick, uh, helping out there in the conference with a a little boy called uh, Jack. Jack was raised in a a Christian home, and uh, we had lots of uh, conversations through the week there, but he didn't think himself a a Christian, and so we just kept talking through the week in the different Bible studies and the different sessions. Uh, The kids in the group were called Jeremiah, Micah, and Isaiah, so it was my guess they were from a Christian home, <laughs> and so that was the context. But throughout throughout the week in our in our Bible studies and in the talks, we had good conversations together, uh, good conversations with the boys, and especially with Jack. And after one of the evening sessions, I was chatting with them, and he really bravely and really well done managed to summarise really the whole talk. And he said, "Well, we know that we know that we've sinned, we know that uh, Jesus has paid for our sin and we know that if we trust in Jesus then we will be in heaven forever." And I said, "That's right, Jack. That that is what we believe and that is what was taught." But the question is, Jack, do you believe that? And then the lights went on. I do believe that. I do believe that. Well, Jack, I said, today, this is not your home. Heaven is your home because you trust in Jesus. And that is the good news of the gospel. As we share the gospel with people, God will save people to the praise of his glorious grace. And so we praise him. And that's Jack's story. But what about your story? Where are you with the Lord Jesus? Are you trusting in him tonight? Maybe you're like Jack, surrounded by Christians, covered in a kind of Christian camouflage. Maybe you've gone to church quite a lot. Maybe you were raised in church. Maybe you were even baptized or confirmed. Maybe you've done ministry at some point. Maybe you've gone abroad to do ministry. Maybe you serve in some way. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is, are you trusting in Jesus Christ tonight? Or are you trusting in yourself The invitation, as Jesus says, is to come, to come to him, to come to him and receive his forgiveness, to come to him to experience the joy, the peace and the love of God as he lavishes his grace upon us.